0: Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. New City. I'm so glad you are joining us. My name is Nate Bush. Good to, to be. There we go. The lead pastor here at New City Church. Uh, this is our final message in the Esther series. Believe it or not, I squeezed another message out of this text. And today, what we'll be doing in Esther is kind of giving you an overview of the story, putting the story in a grander context, and so before we get into uh, our next message in the Godless series, our last message in the Godless series, I just want to do one thing with you real quick: is celebrate the new city of the Drive-In event. Man, what a phenomenal event that was! It was so much fun. We had uh, well over a hundred cars. I can't remember the exact count, but it was a lot. And a whole bunch of people came out. We watched the movie, raised a whole bunch of money for Shine School Partnership, that partners churches and schools for the common good, a nonprofit. We are so glad to have. Uh, hand in starting many years ago and so it's just a, a beautiful night and I just really enjoyed seeing people's faces and getting a chance to get some of our folks together in one event. Uh, so I, I just want you to know that man, it, it meant a lot to me uh, for you to be there and I really enjoyed it and if you missed out... Um, I wish there was another one coming up soon, but we'll see what COVID provides. Uh, there is this coming up, though, Relationship Goals, all right? That's coming up, a new series, and uh, I want to encourage you to invite somebody. It's never been easier to invite somebody to a church gathering because you can invite somebody to an online gathering, and it really, the cost is low. You don't even have to get take a shower and get dressed, all right, to attend a service. Uh, it's, the cost is low, but I think the payoff is high, and so they could obviously you could attend in person, as many are today, or you can uh, attend online, but this series is going to be really good. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount just for a few weeks, and the Sur- Sermon on the Mount is one of these interesting sort of manifestos on relationships, It's a manifestos on relationships in, within the Christian community, and the applications here to our marriages, to our dating relationships, to our singleness, to our relationships at work uh, are vast, and uh, I think that we... Could really use it right now, honestly. We could really use Jesus' guidance on how to relate to one another within the kingdom and also how to display that kingdom relationship ethic to the world. And so I'm really excited about this series. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be a quick overview, so we're not going to hit every verse in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But if you want to read ahead, you can start reading now Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and uh, you can get some of that sort of stored up in your mind ahead of time All right, godless that's the series we're in and we've called the series Godless because the Book of Esther doesn't mention God uh, doesn't uh, it references sort of uh, uh, intentionally so in a vague way prayer but prayer no prayer is recorded uh, there's no prophecy there's no miracles it is one of those books that is so relatable to most of our lives because most of us have never walked on dry land uh, most of us have never witnessed a healing uh, most of us have, have never Experience a, a, a prophet speaking as God speaks. And so uh, this is a book where God shows up in every page, but he shows up in the margin. And he shows up in quiet ways, and, but he shows up. And, and there's a big point that I want to bring home to you today, and this is this. This is the big idea all right, for the whole message. In the end, okay, in the end, and this is important, and in the spaces in between. The Christian story is a story of peace. In the end, and, and in the spaces in between, now that's important because some of us are in a place right now where there's not a lot of peace going on in our life. We goes is there peace that we can taste now? That's a foretaste of the peace that we'll have then? Yeah, it's here. It's spaces in between. We will experience the Peace. Now, what's interesting to me, when I was reading through Esther again, and I was—I'd planned on uh, doing a sermon on the story frame of Esther, and you should have seen the original outline. It was really great. It was super confusing and uh, great and really cerebral and unrelatable. Uh, But as I was working through uh, that message, I came across Esther 10.3 and just kept reading it over and over again. And when I read, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, that's King Xerxes, or King Headache, as Asherus is it's kind of a pun, a play on words. So you have this, this Mordecai going from obscurity to second in command. And I just thought to myself, that, that feels like that's happened before in the Bible. And so he goes to second command. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. He brought They brought about a story of peace. And so there's a story earlier in the Bible, the story of Joseph, who also goes from obscurity to being in second command, which just caught my attention. So uh, you can read about it in, in Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, a man like Joseph, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, what's interesting when comparing these two stories, and you don't have to have a lot of Bible knowledge to do this comparison, uh, but Joseph is uh, somebody who interprets dreams. There's all kinds of sort of drama related to that, and so you've got like this somebody, you've got all the sort of the the curtain pulled back, and you can see all the sort of God stuff in Joseph's story, but the curtain's not pulled back in this story in Esther, and the Mordecai and Esther story, they're not like super holy or pure or righteous, and, and they do all kinds of unrighteous things, but God uses them anyway. But here, Joseph's story its a little bit different, but a lot the same. You shall be over my house, and all uh, my people, says Pharaoh, shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne I will be greater than you. In other words, he's at second in command. And what caught my attention is that Mordecai goes from obscurity, the object of genocide in the book of Esther, to I mean, mourning, weeping at the city gates, to this divine reversal with Haman, to being in this position of power that he's in second command. And this happened before where Joseph went from obscurity to being in second in command. And I just started thinking about how God's story is so predictable. Like the story of God's faithfulness is so like one of the things that makes it you know so, uh, uh, for the Christian that makes God uh, such a, a wonderful person to be in relationship with is that God is predictable. Like there's no uncertainty with Him. Like you know what you're going to get every time. And in Revelation 21:5, we see that the end is predictable. Behold, I'm making all things new," says the voice on the throne. "I'm making all things new." Now, one of the things that has impacted me about Esther has been that God's been at work making things new in Joseph's story. He's been at work making th- things new in Esther's story. He's at work making things new in many stories in this room right now. He's at work making things new ultimately in the grander story. But what makes Esther so relatable to, relatable to me is like, how like, norm, normative it is. Listen to Karen Job's commentary. Although there is not one tiny miracle found in the book of Esther, the cumulative result of a series of improbable events, leads one to ponder the miraculous quality of the ordinary. As it has been said, a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. And I just sat back and went, you know what, how many miracles have I witnessed in my life not knowing I was witnessing a miracle? That it was a coincidence of my own history and my own story. God working His redeeming, stu- His redeeming stuff, doing His redeeming thing, like in my own life. See, the story of Esther normalizes the everyday supernatural work of God in our lives. And I want you to know, he normalizes, like Esther normalizes God's supernatural work in the ordinary, and God does work supernaturally in the ordinary life. Christopher Ash says it this way, God upholds His covenant when He is unseen just as surely as when He is seen in miracles or heard in prophecies. He's faithful, He's predictable. So let me just say it this way, and I I want to speak to you just directly here on this. Your story is not an anomaly of history. Uh, Let me say it just a slightly different way. It, it helps to know that each of our stories is a part of a greater story. Uh, let me just say it another way. There, in, this is not hyper. This is not hyperbolic speech here. Okay, there, there is no darker symptom of the fall than the feeling of loneliness. When God created Adam, He said, "It's not good for man." To be alone. Loneliness is perhaps the darkest and the most palpable experience of the fall. And there are so many people who live their lives like every day thinking that, that like, their, their story is the anomaly. Like it stands out. Like nobody understands. Nobody knows what they're going through. And and their brokenness is unique to the brokenness of the world. And there's no redemption available to them. I just want you to know, like you should really get over yourself a little bit here. Because your story is not that unique. And that God can do His redeeming work in your story just as much as He does His redeeming work in Esther and Mordecai's story, in the story of the Jews, and the story of, you know, God's covenant faithfulness shows up in every page of the book of Esther. And it shows up in every page of the Christian life. So it's easy to feel alone in your story, but you are not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone in your story. So here's another big idea for the message today. The path to peace is a predictable story frame. There is a path to, be, to peace, and it's a predictable story frame. There is a frame that, is, that, that frames the story of Esther, but also frames the story of all of humanity. It also frames your individual story, and knowing the frame can give you three things. Here are the three things. Peace about your future, because you know the future is predictable, because God's proven himself to be predictably faithful. And when you have peace about your future, it's amazing how that gives you peace in your present. It's amazing how, you, when you know that God is at work making all things new. He can't be trusted to make things new because Christ raised from the dead proving He overcame sin and death and all the consequences of the fall. And so you have like this predictable future of resurrection, the renewal of everything. It's predictable. It's knowable. You know it's going to happen if you're a Christian. And when you know that, you can be confident in your present that God does ultimately the redeeming work, but He also does it now in our, in our everyday lives. And then when that happens for you, when, when peace begins to settle into your soul, what happens is a path to becoming a person of peace becomes your reality. Like You become, like you, you, you become a person who just sort of blazes a path of peace for others. So here's a story frame. The first one is fall. There is a fall narrative that, that is clear and obvious in the book of Esther. In fact, Esther begins with all kinds of fallenness. Now, the fall of humanity is recorded in Genesis 3. If you want to go back and read it, it's really a powerful uh, chapter because it explains so much of the human condition. And one of the things I want to do today is just be your therapist. I want to be your counselor a little bit. And I want to help you to understand how you work and why you work the way you do and what, how it's connected to like th- your origin story. So the fall, the fall of humanity, is something that's a curse that we're all under. And when Eve sins and Adam sin in Genesis 3.6, this is what the Scripture says. The woman saw the tree, you know, this tree that was forbidden. She saw the tree that was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, disobeying God and not not following His desire for them, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What this does is gives you a little bit of the anatomy of what happens when you sin. Uh, it's, it's what happens when you sin is you become profoundly self-centered. You, 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 you cannot think of another human being but yourself. It's good for me. It's, it, it, it'll, it'll help me to be wise. It's good for me to eat. It looks great for me. And you become the center of the story. You become the center of the narrative. And the pride in you, what it does, it values you above all others. And the source of sin in you is Pride. But pride has like this darker side because pride isolates people. It isolates people from other people because pride, when it turns your heart inwardly, what happens is your heart then isn't available to worship God and to love the neighbor. This is the essence of obedience to God is loving God and loving the neighbor. This is the essence of what God wants for you. And, you know, if you want to know how to live a a life of fullness is to understand the things that that make it available to you, the things that make it possible for you to have a heart that is outward focused to love God and to love the neighbor. But what pride does, it brings all that affection, all that desire into the self. Then the eyes of both were, were open. This is Adam and Eve in Genesis 3:7. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately, immediately, the effect of the fall was loneliness. Immediately it was disconnectedness. Naked, naked and afraid hiding behind leaves. You see, what happens is the pride in you is why we're working so hard to cover up. One of the reasons why people experience loneliness is because they've experienced personal shame. Uh, Sometimes it registers in low-grade embarrassment, just a general sort of feeling I'm embarrassed around other people. I don't feel myself around other people. I don't feel like I can connect with other people. I feel like there's some barrier between me and others. And so what people try to do to bridge that barrier is they cover up. They cover up with work, they cover up with the way they parent, they cover up with some performance usually in their life, and they think this performance will be the thing that I'll hold up to the world, that I'll I'll prove my value, prove my worth, and help me to connect. Well, Esther begins with an insecure king covering up his insecurities. It's just another illustration of what it looks like uh, to be somebody who's just radically self-centered, proud, and trying to cover up, you know, all of those insecurities. What happens in Esther 1 is Xerxes, or or Ahasuerus, as as noted in Esther, he shows off his riches for 180 days and another seven days, and then ultimately tries to show off Queen Vashti, who refuses him. And the entire, like, first chapter of Esther is just a king trying to show off his wealth, his golden couches, his golden vessels, I mean, just showing off. And one of the sort of Lessons that Esther's trying to teach us in these early pages is don't be enamored by earthly power and wealth. Because, as we find out really soon, that power and wealth are helpless in actually saving you. Power and wealth may, be, may, may provide you a good covering, they may be good leaves in the language of Genesis 3. Uh, they may provide you a good covering, but they're, they're really, they really are helpless in actually saving you, of giving you any sense of personal significance. In Esther two twenty one, you see this. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and what does he hear? Bithyn and Teresh talking about how they have plans to assassinate the king. And in verse twenty two. this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told Queen Esther. Esther became queen by being participant in this exploitation. But Mordecai's relationship to Esther is Mordecai's uh, raised Esther as his daughter. Uh, They have this kind of tight relationship, although he's not actually her father, but she's now queen through this exploitation of women that happens in Esther's story. And Mordecai says, hey, I got this plot. I I came to the knowledge of this plot uh, to assassinate the, the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king, and the king's life is Saved, and one of the things that happens in chapter 2 of Esther is that this king, with all this wealth and all this power and all this, and, and showing it off and, and putting it on full display, lacks any ability to actually save himself. In fact, it's the Jews, the covenant people of God, who show up as the saviors in his own story. But it doesn't sink in, like it doesn't, it doesn't impact the king. He doesn't elevate Mordecai, and we're not told why. It's one of those coincidences of Esther but instead he elevates Haman. And it just, ele- it just further just sort of helps us to see that pride in, uh, elevates power and possessions over people, and that's what he does. He prioritizes self-preservation. And after, uh, after these things, King Ahasuerus, these things were the plot, the assassination plot, the subsequent killing of those who had the plot uh, in play. And what does King do? The King promotes Haman, who's a villain, who's genocidal, who ends up you sort of uh, calling for the execution of the Jews. I mean, this very powerful, rich person because he wants, he wants to protect his power and his wealth. In Esther 3.9, we see that when he asks for genocide, Haman is the kind of guy who can offer the king 10,000 10, talents of silver. He can offer the king money. He can offer the king sort of uh, uh, you know, his, his own sort of evil, power-hungry sort of personality, and the king thinks this is going to work out well for him. And what you see here is that Haman and Xerxes are worshipers. And the question is not, will we worship? But what will we worship? Because every human being is a worshiper. Because we ultimately are worshiping the thing that we think will save us. That's what we're worshiping. Haman in the story worships himself most of all. I mean, that's the thing that makes him most angry. He worships himself most of all. Xerxes is worshiping the approval of others, always trying to seek the approval of others. In fact, Xerxes never makes a decision without first consulting people in the whole story of Esther because he is this person who's so needy. He's so desperate for the approval of others. And Haman is so self-centered, he can think of nobody but himself. It's a reminder of Romans one twenty five because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it is normal for people who are in a fallen world who are feeling anxious and worried and stressed out and exposed and, and they're naked and afraid. It's normal for, for those people to try to worship something they think will save them. And we worship the things that ultimately we believe will save us. That is normal for the human experience. We'll worship the approval of others in our workplace. We'll worship the approval of a spouse or the approval of somebody we want to be our spouse. We'll worship the approval of other moms or other dads or other people in the career field. Like we, We will find something to worship. And let me just say, this is just me speaking pastorally to you as a Christian, okay? If you're a Christian today and you're listening in, this is me being pastoral to you. It is possible for Jesus to be your actual Savior and for something else to be your functional Savior. It is possible for Jesus to have saved you from your sins ultimately and to be doing His redeeming and newer work in you, but you still have this sense that you need something else. Like, Jesus, you're great. Thank you for saving me, but what I really need is the approval of these people at work. Or, Jesus, thank you for saving me, but what I really really need is the approval of this other person in my life. Thank you for saving me, but what I really need is I need this accolade or I need this next trophy of life to prove my significance and worth and value. See, even though God, through his covenant people, saved King Xerxes, he still chose to worship power and possessions. And to me, one of the, the coldest lines of the entire book of Esther is Esther chapter 3, verse 10. So the king took a signet ring, hands it to Haman, and says, go ahead, order the genocide of the Jews, because I know you're angry at Haman, and you want to... I, mean, I know, Haman, you're, you're angry at Mordecai, and you want to take out all of the Jews because you're angry at Mordecai. Actually, he doesn't know all that information. He doesn't care about that information. He just says, you asked for genocide, here's my ring, go have genocide. And it's just cold. He, I think Xerxes is a little intoxicated by the power. I think Haman is a little intoxicated by the power. In fact, I think Haman's a lot intoxicated. And pride will tempt you with feelings of control before it enslaves you to its passions. Here's how it works. Like the pride in you says, if I have this thing, or if I achieve this thing, or if I do this thing, or if I perform in this way, I'll be accepted. I'll be significant. I'll be valuable. My life will matter. And pride gives you, it tempts you with control. Like, it, it, it basically, the pride in you says, Yeah, you can. You can do it. You, you, you can work hard enough. And if you work hard enough, then you'll be worthy. You'll be valuable. You'll be significant. The pride in you will, will call out of you all this performance and all this sort of, you know, it'll call out of you all, all this approval seeking. And, and it'll, it'll say, Hey, you can be in control. So, so, one of the interesting parts of Esther in Esther 3 5 is when Haman sort of has the king issue this decree that everybody has to bow down to him. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Like he, thought, like, like he thought he could have enough power that he could really truly control the approval of others, and he couldn't control the approval of others. He couldn't control the, the approval of Mordecai. And so what happens is he's filled with passion. That passion is actually the thing that enslaves him and ultimately is the reason why, for his downfall in the narrative. Which to me just underscores the importance of believing this to be true. You are not in control. You're not in control. In the early pages of Esther, in the trying to sort of respond to the feelings of the fall, Mordecai, I mean, I'm sorry, Haman and and Xerxes try to gain control and maintain control. They learn quickly they're not in control. In the words of Jesus, in which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? You're not in control. You're not even in control of when you live and when you die. You're not in control. This makes us feel, by the way, extraordinarily vulnerable. And I will say second to loneliness, vulnerability is a signature feeling of the fall. When God is walking in the cool of the day, going on His first missionary journey, looking after Adam and Eve, He calls out to Adam and Adam's hiding. God says, what are you doing? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, I was naked, I hid myself. I felt exposed, I felt vulnerable. Powerless is another phrase. Out of control, not in charge of my own destiny or my own life. See, a key question in the story of Esther keeps coming up for me, and that's who's really in power. Because in the early pages, it looks like with all of the wealth and all of the power, I mean, in, in this moment in history, Xerxes is the most powerful person on paper in the entire world. He, he, I mean, he owns it all. The, the entire known world is under the Persian empire and rule. Yet he can't save his own life and is dependent upon the covenant people of God to rescue him. And... It needs to be said, okay? It needs to be said, and you need to believe it. You are not all powerful. You're not all powerful. You may want to sometimes pretend like you can be a Savior, but you're not the Savior. You may want to sometimes pretend like you have it all together, but you don't have it all together. If you had it all together, God doesn't send Jesus, right, to live the life you could not live, to die the death that you should have died, to be buried in the grave, rise again, and conquer your sin and death. It just doesn't happen. So I want to encourage you, though, okay? I want to encourage you, and here's the encouragement. You are free to be powerless when you are a child of of a benevolent father who is all-powerful. Like, you're just free to be powerless when you go, you know what? My God is good, and He's in control, and He's my dad, and He's all-powerful, and so I don't have to be in control when I know who's actually in control. But loneliness and vulnerability, this is what it feels like to need to be saved. And you might have been around Christians, and you might have heard the phrase, uh, I got saved when, or when did you get saved, or those kinds of questions. What, the, the feeling of needing to be saved is the feeling of loneliness and vulnerability. Feeling like you are not okay with you, and you know you're not okay with other people, and you kind of feel like you may not have a word for it, but you're not okay with God. It's this sense of shame, personal shame and guilt. It's a sense that I'm not who I ought to be, and the world's not the way it ought to be, and nothing is going as it should. That's the feeling that you have when you feel the need to be saved. And when Christians talk about being saved, they're talking about being saved in part from themselves. The pride in you that just keeps sounding the alarm bell that says, you're not okay, you're not okay, you're not okay. And then pride just says, feed me, feed me, feed me. This calls all the attention to you. See, sin turns the heart inward, while salvation frees you from needing to be so mindful of yourself. And so when you open up the early pages of Esther, you see that the fall is on full display. The fall's on full display. You see, you see the evil villain Haman, but you see Xerxes, and you see Xerxes in need of the approval of others, Haman just sort of having just himself at the center of his own story, and guess what? You and I can relate to both those characters as evil as they are, and we can also relate to the need for redemption. That's the second part of the story frame, its fall and its redemption. Let me say that true redemption cannot be had without divine intervention. That's one of the things we read about in the story of Esther. Like you need divine intervention. Salvation belongs to the Lord, says so Psalm 3 Your blessings be on your people. Like salvation is God's business, not your business. I just want to say it again. I need to say this over and over again because I think that sometimes we feel like we need to be the Savior of the world when you're not, you're not the Savior of the world. No one is in complete control of their own story. So, in the story of Esther, Haman the bad guy asks for genocide. The king gives his signet ring. Genocide is ordered. And Mordecai is weeping. And he asks Esther to go and plead with the king. And he says to Esther, for If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. What happens in this moment in Mordecai's mind is that Mordecai is becoming awakened to the fact that there is somebody in control of the story. There is someone in control of the story. There is is a grand storyteller who is telling a story of fall and redemption. And redemption will come from someplace. Deliverance will happen. Listen, the the Christian confession is so life-giving, and I want to to give this to you, and I give this to you regularly, but the Christian confession is so life-giving because the Christian confession begins with, I can't. It's just because I can't be the Savior, I can't save myself, I can't do it, but He did. Jesus did for me what I cannot do for myself, and so I can't. He did, and because He did, now I can. I have the power of the Holy Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead within me. I live not, because, you know, not with my righteousness, but with Christ's righteousness as my story. Like I can because He did. But you know it's so freeing. If you could come to the place in your life right now where you could just say to God, you know what? I can't do it anymore. That's such a freeing moment. See when we when we confess I can't, we're invited to Jesus to do what only he can. And sometimes when you, like, are trying to be in control of your story and the phone narrative is sucking into you and you're trying to seek the approval of others or perform, outperform your friends or outperform your neighbors at work and you're trying really hard just to put the best foot forward because you feel like this will be the thing that justifies you, eventually, like some of us, have come to the place in our lives, I know I have come to the place in my life where I have just come to the end of me and I still didn't save me. And it wasn't until I was able to say to God, I can't, I can't, I can't. And if I did Jesus to do for me what only, <laughs> what only He can do, be the Savior. And there is, by the way, my friend, salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And under Savior of the universe, the name is not yours, it's His. But what's interesting about Esther. To me, I mean, just it's helpful to me because I know that I'm a fallen, broken person. Okay, I know that I am not, I know that I'm not the Savior. <laughs> Yet, Esther and Mordecai, I mean, they didn't even when they had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, they didn't under the Persian reign and rule. They stayed in Susa, participated in the broken, fallen system of the world. Uh, Esther, you know, s- sleeps her way to the top. It is uh, not a story of personal righteousness. Yet God uses them. He uses imperfect people for His perfect good. See, our, our our participation in God's redemption story is one of the greatest privileges of life. The fact that God would use someone like you <laughs> to be a participant in His redemption story is amazing. And what Mordecai says to Esther, he says, hey, and who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Like maybe God used all of your imperfection and sleeping your way to the top and not being like Daniel. You know, Daniel refused to eat at the king's table, but you know, Esther slept in the king's bed. And so here she is at the top of the kind of this sort of, in this moment, it, you know, it, of influence in the kingdom. And Mordecai goes, maybe God used all of your imperfection. To work towards this perfect good. You see, our participation in redemption is, when you kind of boil it down, it's just faith-inspired action. It's just our willingness to go. You know what? I'm not the savior, but I know who he is. Use me. Use me as you will. Uh, our redemption came through sacrifice, and we participate in Jesus' redemption story through our self-sacrifice. So in Esther 4.16, when Esther finally says, you know what, I'm going to do it. You fast, and I'll fast, and I'm going to do it. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Look, at New City, we have a firm conviction that God is at work making all things new. Like we have a firm conviction that God is working, that our God is a working God, that He's working right now. Then when we read it in Revelations one five, behold, I'm making all things new. That's not just a future promise, it's a, f- a present promise. And our greatest joy as a church is working with Jesus to bring about that renewal. It's like our, great, our greatest joy. And he would use an imperfect church like New City Church to do His renewal work in the city is to me mind-blowing. And so we have committed to pray, Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as is in heaven. We've committed to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done in Albuquerque as it is in heaven. We committed to pray this prayer because we believe God does that work. And He does His work through imperfect people and that He is a redeeming God, and He's the Savior, but we get to participate. Like, how wild is that? That's the wild thing about the story of Esther, is that imperfect people are used for God's perfect gain. And I, I just I can't believe it, but he gets to, he, we get to be used by Him in His redemption story. So the question for the redeemed is not whether we will participate in God's redeeming work, it's where and for whom. You know, one of the... It's, it's like, God God has positioned you in this life with the influence you have for His purpose. We've been as a staff team meditating on Luke 15 a lot lately. It's a story, it's a parable where Jesus says, hey, imagine a shepherd. He's got 99 sheep, but one's lost. Imagine that shepherd going after that one that's lost. He says, he leaves the 99 in the open country, and he goes after the one that's lost. And we've been asking our staff team, we've been asking just this question a bunch lately. We've been really wrestling with it. We've been taking notes about it. But who's who's your one? If you get to be a participant in God's redeeming story... And if God has rescued you and redeemed you, if he's, if He's, you know, if you know, you know you're saved, not because you've been good, but you're saved because Christ has been good on your behalf and you've received His righteousness, and the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you feel like, man, you feel so blessed to be a recipient of salvation through Jesus Christ. Like you are not only a, a redeemed person, but you're called, you're called on a redeeming mission. And the, the, who, who's your one? Like who's God calling you to? We use this uh, acronym at New City just to say, hey, this is one way. If you're looking, if like, i don't know, I, got, I got a one, what do I do? You, well, you bless your one. You be prayerful, you listen, you eat, you serve, and you store. You tell your story. What story? Your story of fall and your story of redemption. You see, your one needs to hear your redemption story. And every once in a while, we just have to revisit it. How did Jesus save you? What were the elements in your redemption story? Who did he use in your story to preach to you the gospel? How did it come to you? In what shape did it come to you? There there are moments, but I I can remember there are moments when, when, I mean, identifiable moments where God spoke through someone in my life that worked to bring about my salvation. I, mean, I remember being a sophomore in college and hearing the gospel and it's ringing true to me. Because God used somebody in my life to bless me. You see your one is someone who needs their own redemption story. So who who in your life right now by the way needs a redemption story? Who in your life is still living under the shame of the fall? Who feels the vulnerability of the fall? Who feels the loneliness of the fall? Like who in your story is in need of redemption? One of the reasons I put together this Relationship Goals series is because I know that All the distancing we're talking about right now in coronavirus land, all right, six feet of distance all the time, home at home isolation, groups no bigger than five now. uh, If you're in New Mexico, and and so I mean these, this kind of this kind of increasing isolation is just a reminder to all of us that we are in need of relationships, and loneliness is a chief is is a chief feeling of the fall. And so God's given us a mission to bring His covenant. Community to people. God uses imperfect people for His perfect plan. That's what He does. God can use your imperfect story to point to His perfect story. The story in Esther is not a perfect story, but it is a story of like divine reversals. A story of, of drama. There's a pivot point in the story. Uh, verse eleven is the pivot point, and so it's the center of the narrative. It's when. Haman takes the robes and the horse and he dresses up Mordecai and he brings Mordecai through the city carrying the horse and has to proclaim that this is the man whom the king delights. And so Haman is humbled and Mordecai is exalted. So I mean, this is a reliving of the biblical principles that, that God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. All these things are in display. the divine reversal, the pivot point of the narrative. And every once in a while we just have to go back. Or we have to go back to our own story and think through our own pivot point. And when did God flip the table for us when when did you feel when did you feel that that truth like that just sort of the exaltation of being a child of god like when you knew like man the father looks at me and he smiles he loves me the reason why i want you to remember that pivot point I didn't even know this until I'm preaching it now. So I didn't even know this until just this minute. <laughs> you know, like this was, you know, sometimes you're like writing the notes and you go, what, what, where is this coming from? But I, I remember it, man. I remember I was, I was a sophomore in college and I got rescued very dramatically and I couldn't help myself. I really couldn't help myself. I was the worst, absolute worst evangelist of all time. But I was telling everybody. I mean, everybody about Jesus, because I had been so dramatically rescued, and every, I mean, every Friday night, I packed my backpack full of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I went down to downtown Orlando, and I hung out with a bunch of homeless kids who were coming off of like drugs, because that was the community I hung out with before I got saved, and I was like, I'm going to give everybody PBJs, when you sober up, I'm telling you about Jesus, and I just couldn't help myself, because it, like something had changed, it was a pivot point for me. And sometimes like Christian people like live in their faith for too long. I mean, too long is the wrong phrase, but they live in their faith for and it grows cold. Like, like, like it, like like just grows cold, and the hunger, and like the desire to, to, you know, to worship God, and to love their neighbor, and to share the good news, it just kind of fades away. You see, the redemption story in Esther revolves around Mordecai and Esther coming out of hiding. Hiddenness is the key, is the key idea in Esther. It's, it's, it's like this, it's God's hiddenness, but also the hiddenness of Mordecai and, and Esther. Esther hiding her identity until the moment it happens in Esther 7.3, when she says to the king, my life and my people. And she points to Haman, who's the villain, and Haman is ultimately killed in the story, the narrative. You see, fall, redemption, restoration, this is the story frame. In Esther 10.3, after Purim is instituted as a celebration of when God rescued the Jews from genocide, and the final sort of pages are unfolding. You see Mordecai is brought to the second in command, the divine reversal between him and Haman. But this final line, peace to all his people, Restoration is peace. That's what restoration is. It's peace. Fall, redemption, restoration. What is restoration? It's peace. See, peace of what, what God brings when He restores things to the way they ought to be. You get tastes of it now. Everything in Esther's narrative isn't beautiful, and, it, and even the restoration process is pretty gruesome. But it's, it's a taste of it. Let me say it this way, peace is not merely the absence of pain, it's the presence of righteousness. Uh, this verse is like in my heart, like I, I, I pray this next verse, Proverbs 11.10, over our city fairly often. When I'm just driving around, it comes to my mind, um, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. And I pray for the rejoicing of our city, for the righteous to do righteous things, loving God, loving the neighbor, the justice work of God, the peacemaking work of God. I, but I know, here's the thing that I know is to be true, though, is that we experience, in American society anyway, we experience the lack of peace most profoundly internally. Um, just the... If you've ever had this, 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 this feeling that you, your soul can't be settled, your mind won't stop racing, you can't stop connecting every event of your day back to you and how people perceive you, then you understand what it feels like to lack internal peace. And eternal peace is felt when Jesus' righteousness it settles into your soul. Perhaps my favorite verse in all the Bible Is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That God puts His righteousness in you. And when it settles into your soul that you are not saved because you've been good, but you're saved because Christ was good for you. When it settles into your soul that you don't have to be good to be saved, because Jesus was already good, for you it settles into your soul when you have that sense about you i don't have to be good i don't need I don't need your approval to be justified it's amazing what it's amazing what your mind can do when it's not always thinking about itself when your mind drifts to just worship of God because it's freed from the prison of self, when your mind drifts to the needs of others around you because it's freed from thinking about itself all the time, it's amazing what happens to your mind. And when we're living out of our story, our fall redemption restoration story, we, we're we really living out of it. We will become a people of peace. It's, it's, rare, it's rare to meet somebody who's like so in tune with Jesus and so in tune with their faith story, that when you meet them, you really, you really know that they, they aren't thinking about themselves at all. but They're thinking about you, and they're concerned about you, and they're concerned about others, and they really love God, and they worship Him. But when you meet those people, man, they are so winsome. And they seem to bring peace with them wherever they go. Like when they show up in the room, you're like, wow, I was so anxious, but now I feel, I like me. I like me because you like me. And I don't know why you liking me likes me. So to may me like me so much, but it just does. And what happens is when you're around people like that, it's like so winsome. Maybe, maybe you could be somebody like that. Maybe you could just revisit your own story today, your own fall redemption and restoration story. Just think about all the things that Jesus redeemed in your life, that, the things that no longer mark you anymore, the sinful past. You could receive in your redemption the, the righteousness of Jesus and just let it settle into your soul. And then you could live out of that and become somebody like Mordecai who brings peace to people. It just brings peace. The path to peace is a predictable story frame: it's fall, redemption, restoration. It's just predictable. You see it all over the stories of the, of the scriptures. And knowing this frame can give you three things: a peace about your future. Because you know ultimately restoration of all things is happening, he's making everything new. Peace about your present because you know he does redeeming work here and now. And knowing that story gives you a path to becoming a person of peace. becoming a person who brings peace in your everyday life. All right, that's my sermon. let's pray. Father, uh, here's what I'm thinking about. Um, I wanted to do two things today, Father, in the in the message, and I wanted to, to counsel the soul that was just not feeling it, and I wanted to put your word in place so your Holy Spirit could just speak to the soul. And so what I'm going to ask, Father, is that through your Spirit, that you speak to us, that you let us know that we are um, we're good with you, and um, and that's all that matters. I need that. I mean, even today, Father, as we were singing, I was, just, <laughs> I was putting my idols to bed. I was putting them to rest, the things that I think will be my functional saviors. And, and uh, if there's any, if there's any that more of that in me, I just pray you'd put it to death, that I might just look to you for my, my ultimate salvation. Um, I, do, I do pray that you help us to become a people of peace, though. That somebody, somebody in our life will be a beneficiary of the, of the grace you've given us and the, the redemption story that you've given us. Um, help us to be used by you in some way to share the good news about your son Jesus and how he just settled the score once and for all and gave us new life. I pray for that opportunity with my one this week. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being faithful, for being predictably faithful. It settles it settles my spirit. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.